I would say pretty much across the board, if I have a strong reaction and I'm not accepting of something either in them or their, you know, their behavior or their attitude or something, it's, I would say, 100% of the time, it's bringing something up in me that's either I'm scared about, I'm triggered, you know, like I'm actually like brought back to the past for a moment, um, or I feel threatened in some way. And I think that the the key thing that he brings up here is that to be more helpful, we actually need to do our own work. He says, I must grow my grow and accept myself in these respects. For most of human history, people have parented the way their parents and grandparents did with culture providing the cues. We call this Parenting 1.0. For various reasons, parents began to question these approaches and we started turning more and more to so-called experts to learn to parent. This was the beginning of Parenting 2.0. This allowed for some real advances, but also a lot of confusion as we got further and further away from our natural parenting instincts. Parenting 3.0 is about reclaiming those instincts and integrating them with our current understanding of child development. It brings together the wisdom of the past with the best scientific and psychological research of the present. Parenting 3.0 isn't a fad or a quick fix. It's a set of principles that allows us to engage with our kids and life from an informed and empowered place. I'm Jai Flicker. And I'm Deb Blum. Welcome Welcome to to Parenting Parenting 3.0. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Jai and Deb here. And today we are finishing up both our three-part series on Carl Rogers and season one. So today we will be talking about the characteristics of a helping relationship We'll be continuing to talk about that and we'll we'll be focused on characteristics six through 10. So welcome back, picking up where we left off last week. Here you go. The best predictor for the long-term well-being and best outcomes for our children on like many, many metrics was that they had at least one parent who valued them for who they are. Mm. Like wholeheartedly valued and loved them for who they are, not just valued and loved them. Hmm. Valued and loved them for who they are and that they really believed it, that they perceived it to be true. The kid. The child had to perceive it to be true. Yeah. So it couldn't be the parents, because all parents will say that of they course do, because we don't go, we do, yes. right? But the sense that the child felt that they were loved and valued for who they are was a huge predictor for great outcomes for our children and their well-being. So... It just well, this is, is an even better oh, segue. See, and I didn't even know which one it was. All right, all right, all right. Okay, because number six oh, yes. says, um, another question I ask myself is, can I let myself enter fully into the world of his or her feelings and personal meanings and see as he or she does? Can I step into his or her private world so completely that I lose all desire to evaluate or judge it, right? Yeah? Yes. Can I enter into it so sensitively that I can move about in it freely without trampling on meanings which are precious to them? Can I sense it so accurately that I can catch not only the meanings of his or her experience, which are obvious to to that person, but those meanings which are only implicit, which he or she sees only dimly or as confusion. 
can I extend this understanding without limit? Mm, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. So it's about understanding, really under setting our own agenda aside and understanding so deeply, even, you know, maybe sometimes understanding mm-hmm. things that the other person only dimly understands him or herself Mm -hmm. and that's like you can see why this would be helpful Mm -hmm. right especially as a as a child or a teenager trying to make sense of so much right yeah right right and even helping them to you know that's a place where i think words can really come in which is somehow trying to like Put words sometimes to the things that they don't fully understand, not from the place of that we know better, but to just try it out, offer our children to try it on. Is it possible that what you're going through right now is a little bit of this? And, you know, I think this is actually a really normal thing for, for kids to go through. How does it feel for you? Kind of, you know, working it through with someone. Yeah. yeah. I think we're all longing to feel understood. I think that's just something that's a deep core thing for all humans and to provide that space for our children to have someone who's attempting to understand them, just attempting to understand them, just expressing the desire to understand them is probably pretty impactful. Yes. And I'm thinking about my, some of my most meaningful conversations with, with students. And when we have had conversations about difficult things and when I have not just made the attempt to understand, although I think that is a huge win already but when i actually have understood them and they get that i'm understanding them it is very satisfying to me as well as to them it's like Mm -hmm. this like moment it's it's uh like an aha moment that we both are like connected in that in that space and and it's um i think it is uh very bonding and supportive yeah yeah right it's like a um it's sort of like why truth feels so comfortable you know, there's a way that truth washes over us and you just feel like a sense of just, I don't know. I think it's like a sense of just all is right. And so when a child feels understood and you're the one that understood and now you guys are in sync with each other, like maybe it is some level of congruence that you're that we experience. Some like energetic congruence in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Number seven is also very related. Do you want to take this one? Sure. So number seven is also very tightly related to this. And it comes to this, this idea of can I be acceptant of each facet of the other person which they present to me? Can I receive them as they are? Can I communicate this attitude to that person? Or can I only receive them conditionally, acceptant of some aspect of their feelings and silently or openly disapproving of other aspects? And he says, it's been my experience that when my attitude is conditional, then they cannot change or grow in those respects in which I cannot fully receive them. Yeah. And then sometimes when I try to figure it out, he says, when I try to figure out and discover that I've been unable to accept them in every aspect, I usually discover that it's because I personally, I have been frightened or threatened in myself by some aspect of their feelings. 
Yeah. Mm. Which makes also makes a ton of sense. Totally. Something's coming up. We're we we're we're scared of it. We shut down and we're not able to hold that space and yeah. let them be, yeah. and 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 be accepting towards what's coming up. Yeah, I would say pretty much across the board that's been the case for me. If I'm if I have a strong reaction and I'm not accepting of something either in them or their you know their behavior or their attitude or something, it's I would say a hundred percent of the time it's bringing something up in me. That's either I'm scared about, I'm triggered, you know, like I'm actually like brought back to the past for a moment um, or I feel threatened in some way. And I think that the the key thing that he brings up here is that to be more helpful, we actually need to do our own work. He says, I must grow my grow and accept myself in these respects. And I think that that was very, I, I don't know uh if this is an accurate statement, but it feels pretty progressive of him because, you know, we talk about self-love right now. And I think of self-love as an act of fully accepting and integrating all parts of myself, even the parts of myself that I don't love that much. You know, the parts of myself that I don't really wish were part of me. And that's what this work is because what happens is it brings up a part of us that we're like, ooh, I don't want my kid to be that way. That is like... Kids who are arrogant are, you know, not going to be loved by their friends or all these reasons why it's going to be bad. People are going to perceive him and call him names and all these other things and brings up on us the time that someone called us arrogant you know, or whatever. I'm just using that as an example. And uh, (laughs) totally random, totally random. It doesn't have anything to do with me. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the more that I can come to be self-aware to see the places in me that it's activating and getting me kind of worked up and then to be able to come to a place of acceptance in that my, in myself and in an acceptance in them, then we actually can start to have a conversation in a relationship. But before then we really can't, we're just kind of in this, in this kind of defensive place. Yeah. Number eight's very related. I'm going to tack it on here. Okay. He says a very practical issue is raised by the previous question He says, can I act with sufficient Mm. sensitivity in the relationship that my behavior will not be perceived as a threat? You know, if if somebody's presenting something that does bring something up for us and then we kind of react, it could be threatening. We don't necessarily think of it that way. But on a very more subtle level, I mean, there's more overt ways of you know, of threatening someone of saying, I'm going to take your, you know, privileges away, but a more subtle form could just be a reaction. And then it doesn't feel safe to, to talk about that anymore. And so then it leads us to shut down. There are things we can say to our kids. And I think most of us know the types of things that we say to them that probably are going to get a rise out of them. And Usually there's some type of maybe like judgmental statement or something like, 
like the one that he uses here is my like my you do look upset which kind of gets a person i mean he's he was he was talking about in this article about how they were actually doing studies on this just to see how what the level of reactivity a person had and that when you said something like that it would definitely be more likely to have a stronger uptick in a person's like activation around it and i think what he's talking about is that he at the end he says um he says, my desire to avoid such minor threats is not due to a hypersensitivity about my client. It is simply due to the conviction based on the experience that I can free them as completely as possible from external threat. Then they can begin to experience and to deal with the internal feelings and conflicts which they find threatening within themselves. So if if I'm doing something that's kind of threatening, then they're going to start to focus on what I'm doing versus being able to just notice what's happening inside of them. Yeah, and I, just to, to bring this to parenting, I would say, um, because that's very much an important thing, I think, in a therapeutic environment, and I think actually to the best of our ability in an educational environment. I think in a parenting environment, one of the things, you know, just the other day, I am really sensitive to this, and I recognize that I am, but um, I think just that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and focusing on it, but... Um, my younger son, who is a teenager, sat down on the couch and I was, um, we were actually opening up presents and he sat on the, on the arm of the couch, sort of squeezed in next to where my husband was and my water bottle was on the table right next to him and his back touched up against my kind of wobbly water bottle, which was open and it fell off of the count, the, the table onto the floor and made a loud noise and spilled water. Now, I have been known to be the person who's really chill about this stuff. Like they would drop a dozen eggs and I would laugh and like we would make a big, you know, we'd make it, make it fun. And I never really got worked up over it. But for whatever reason, I was in a different mood and I gave him such a look. And I feel guilty right now even because I'm like, well, why did I do that? Now, after it, I said to him, Josh, you know, I really wasn't that bothered by you. I was more annoyed with myself that I left it on the table there and I left it open. So it really wasn't about you, but I was just aggravated. But I gave him one of those looks and you know the look I'm talking about, the look of just irritation. And I didn't say anything. I just walked over and got the towel and did it. But it's an example of that. I unnecessarily got his nervous nervous system activated in that moment. And the more, and you know, that's going to happen in life all over the place, all the time, and we can't pre- prevent that from happening. But I think the more that I don't create that in my own relationship with my children, the better. Because they, the more that they can feel safe with me, they need, I'm, I might have in the, thought, in, the, in the past thought that I had to toughen them up. And that, well, you know what, they're gonna deal with this in life, so they might as well deal with this at home. Well, I have two answers to that. One is naturally they're gonna still deal with it at home because I'm not always gonna be perfect. So there are gonna be times when I'm gonna act that way just like I did, and they're still gonna get that exact example of what it's like to have your nervous system activated for a moment and to feel unsafe for one moment because my expression was probably very unsafe for him. And then uh, and then they're just gonna get it at out in the world anyway. And so the more they have a secure attachment with us, with me, and with hopefully, you know, with both parents, but at least one parent, the more that they have that, that's actually what they draw from. So it's it's like I, I got confused because I think we got taught that you had to like toughen your kids up and, you know, that they can handle this and like you need to be the person who like manages behavior. And now I'm so, you know, deeply understanding that 
it's the secure attachment that allows them to be in the world and not and and feel safe and be thriving. Did um, you have any thoughts to that? Just, just before we move on to nine, I just I I just I agree with this idea that that you know providing a secure base is going to be really helpful and that life is challenging enough that we don't have to manufacture you know artificial learning opportunities everything is a learning opportunity and we don't have to you know i think honestly when people whether it's a parent or an educator is sort of saying oh well they're gonna need to uh you know learn to deal with the harsh realities of real life so that's what i'm doing now I don't know. I think maybe not in all cases, but I think in a lot of cases, what's really going on is justification. Sort of making an excuse for the behavior rather than going, you know what, You're, I was, I, I shouldn't have done that or I feel bad about that. There, It's like too kind of hard. It's easier to just justify it than, than take responsibility for it and feel guilty yeah. for having kind of added to the... Uh, <laughs> child's woes in a sense yeah so it's like hey you know what they're gonna need to deal with it um and then i can kind of walk away going yeah i was doing them a favor yeah yeah <laughs> instead yeah. of going oh see it reminds me of uh of something gordon newfeld says which is that the unavoidable experience of parenthood is is feeling guilty because we care so much about these kids. We want to get it right. We want to not only get it right, we want to get it right all the time. We would want to get it, we want to be perfect. And we can never live up to that. Yeah. And so it's just, we're always going to fall short. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're going to fall way short. And it's, that's painful. Yeah. And so, yeah, so kind of an easy way to, you know, get around feeling that way is to just say, this is, this will toughen them up. And and the reality is it's partly possible it's partly true, but it oversimplifies things in an unhelpful way to just sort of put such a positive spin on it. Right. Yeah. And uh, you know because it's it I think you're right I think it is sort of uh, there is a little kernel of truth in it and I think our kids do it is a tough world out there and I I think the thing that got me tripped up was that I was you know people talk about snowflakes. You know, and like we don't want to raise a snowflake. And uh, I actually think it's the it, that we're going to figure out that it's the exact opposite. Like, you know, the snowflakes are the ones that are being raised in the homes where they're not really getting the support. They're not they don't have a secure attachment. They didn't get the the um, these type of helping relationship sort of interactions and that the ones that did get it in their younger years, especially, that they were the ones that actually grow up a lot more secure and a lot more resilient. And, um, and so I, and I think we can always build this too. Like, I don't, I want, I really want parents to know that like, if you didn't do it in those first five years, let's just get, get on now. Let's work on it. You know? And the last thing I'll say about the, the snowflake thing is that I think it's also to be careful, though, that we don't pave the way for our children because life isn't actually meant to be just easy without any any, you know, uh, hurdles and challenges. And the 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 way I look at this is, can our children depend on that you will be there by their side when they go through the inevitable bumps in the road? Not that we need to clear the bumps in the road, but do they can they know they don't have to do it alone? 
Yeah. And can they know that they can depend <clears throat> on that? We're going to be right there going like, yeah, I know. I know what this is like, or I don't know what this is like. And I just want you to know that I'm here trying to figure it out with you, but that they're not having to navigate this in this like isolated way. Yeah. There's a, there's sort of a way in which it's, there's, there's maybe uh, a similar motivation on both opposite extremes of uh, one being mm. trying to, you know, clear the way and prevent the kids from ever having to experience too much, you know, challenge. And the other side of it, um, you know, s- sort of justifying like, oh, I want to toughen them up. Mm. And in both cases, it's like we're, we're sort of from a fearful place trying to protect our kids from what may come yeah. from life down the road. So we're like, life's going to be tough. So I want to protect them from it yeah. by toughening them up now. Or life's so tough, I need to protect them from it by not letting it actually kind of fall on them. Yeah. And in either case, I think it's doing the, the child a disservice because being in touch with real life is, is that's the most educational thing possible. And of course, there's, you know, age appropriateness along the way. But but I think we tend to underestimate our our children's ability to handle reality far more often than we overestimate it in this day and age. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, yeah, I agree. I think that's that was really well said. Good. Are we going on to nine? All right. So we get into, it's a, again, this is playing off of the next one, a specific aspect of the preceding question, but an important one is, can I free them from the threat of external evaluation? In almost every phase of our lives, at home, at work, at school, we find ourselves under the rewards and punishments of external judgments. Things like, that's good, that's naughty, that's worth an A, that's a failure. And these judgments usually are part of our lives from infancy to old age. He, he acknowledges that, you know, these, he says, I believe these things have, have a certain social usefulness to institutions and organizations such as schools. Um, but in my experience, they do not make for personal growth. And hence, I do not believe that they are part of a helping relationship. So it's not like it's not like they're completely pointless. It's just not helpful. Right. Well, and again, they're going to get a lot of this outside in the world anyway, just by virtue of, you know, things like grades as an example. And people will be evaluating them. You know, what's really an interesting thing he says that I really I've, I've been understanding more and more lately is that he says, curiously enough, a positive evaluation is as threatening in the long run as a negative one. Since to inform someone that they are good implies that you also have the right to tell them that they're bad. Wow. That's yeah. that's really, that's powerful. The right to tell them that they're bad, right? Because it's kind of like, it is that, um, well, the flip side of that coin because you know, it's like, oh, wow, you're, you're so good. It's like then it's positioning you as the authority to say good or bad. Yep. You want to keep going? Yeah. So he says, so I've come to feel that the more that I can keep 
A relationship free of judgment and evaluation, the more this will permit the other person to reach the point where they recognize that the locus of evaluation, the center of responsibility, lies within themselves. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. Um, mm. This, I believe, this is how he ends. This, I believe, can set them free to be a self-responsible person. Right? Yeah. Because then, then that person is going through life not constantly looking to others am i good am i bad but they're they're they have their own internal compass and they're guiding themselves according to it um yeah Yeah. i think it's hard i'll just say that you know based on my experience there's so much cultural conditioning in doing a little bit of that here and there you know we learned not to say bad boy and good girl or whatever we learned to not do that because we were trying not to label the the person, but then we said it was okay to label the behavior, and I think that it's a it's a tricky one, and I think that there is definitely a tendency to use it almost like a reward and a punishment, and so we know you know after talking about rewards and punishments, we know that yes they can work, but they might have a a, a cost to them. So it seems like. Yeah, it just seems Well, I think like a, a, maybe a more useful question would be how did that work for you? Right? Like <clears throat> how yes. pleased are you with your with the outcome of how how, you know, like in a not in a loaded way, but in a, a genuine way. And it's like, you know, instead of saying um you know, they you know, come home and have a a bad grade on a test instead of saying, I told you you didn't study enough or, you know, what's wrong with you? Uh, you know, saying well how did that like what how are you feeling about this and yeah. and like leading them through uh an open inquiry is gonna i think just be more helpful yeah and and i just want to say that i think the same goes for how we speak about other people because i know that um in a protective way it's sometimes easy to label a person so like if our kids come home and they tell us something and somebody wasn't nice and you know we can jump on the bandwagon and then we can say like oh that was like rotten behavior or why did that person do that or she's not nice and we can start doing that maybe we wouldn't say it to our own children but it still sets our kids up there it sets their nervous system up to be worried that we might get called that at some point it's like it introduces that as a possibility and I actually know somebody who's really hurt hurt by uh, a parent who would always call other people names. And the kids really, all the kids really got this internalized sense of, I never, ever want to be called any one of those names. And so they, they did they did go on a path of like achievement and accomplishment because they never wanted to be called stupid or any of those words. But, and it wasn't on purpose. It's not like the parent was thinking, this is what I'm doing. And you could argue that the outcome, if you were looking purely on the metrics of success, were good. But the cost to the child's well-being was pretty severe. So, yeah. you know, just being careful that it's not just what we say to our own children. It's, and let's even go one step further. Let's talk about what we say to ourselves. Standing in the mirror, I'm so fat you know, like, look at all my wrinkles. I'm ugly. Whatever we say. So just. Yes. I, I mean, yes, we, we do want to be 
careful of of all that. And I think just before we move on here, I want to come back to one thing in that he really does make this point as you as you read <clears throat> that he's as worried about positive evaluations as negative ones. I think it's sort of, I mean, even in this conversation, we're talking more about not avoiding saying negative things, but it's like, this could be a whole episode on the difference between sort of healthy, positive affirmation and sort of unhealthy, but, Mm -hmm. but, um, but, just even pondering the idea that sometimes a positive judgment can be potentially harmful or, or have a shadow side, I think is it's at the very least interesting. It is really interesting. It is interesting. Cause there's also another part of me, like I think my mom was through a, in an age where um, with girls, they were trying to, this was in the seventies. And for those of those of us who think that this is just new, there was in the stage of my mom really focusing on like me being like smart and capable, not pretty. And so she almost never said anything to me about my looks. And so interestingly, and so this is almost like in contradiction to this, but I just want to bring nuance to it. Interestingly, though, I was always longing for someone to like, why doesn't anyone ever tell me that I'm beautiful? You know, why doesn't any, I mean, I don't know that I thought those words. I'm, that's my, that's an adult layered upon thing. But as a girl, like just wondering, because I think I still saw in like, you know, on television and other people and, you know, beauty and all of this other, all these other accolades. And so I don't, I don't think that there's like a real clear cut, like this is exactly what you should do. And here's the prescription. It's just something to be really holding. And like you said, it's like something to ponder more than it is that there's some exact prescription for how to do it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Number I 10. I can't believe it. We made it. <sighs> well, let's not. It's a bit of a marathon. <laughs> let's not celebrate too early. <laughs> okay. Okay. We're not done yet. <clears throat> he says, one last question. Can I meet this other individual as a person who is in process of becoming? Or will it be bound by his or her past and by my past? Mm. So um, that's really cool mm. because it's like, am I, am I coming to the interaction with a sense of possibility of what could be? Or am I coming with a fixed sense of this is how you've always been and this is how you always are going to be. So mm-hmm. kind of boxing the person in. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> I, I think it's it's understandable that we're going to use a past history with our kids to kind of inform what is likely to happen. It's not about being completely blind to patterns that we've seen. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that there is a possibility for a growth and change, especially, I mean, in childhood, I mean, a year, for example, in my life, depending on what happens, it could, you know, not a lot of change could happen and that could be fine. Uh, internally, I'm saying, but with 
my two-year-old, I mean, she goes through growth spurts and changes every few weeks, if not, you know, or at least at least every few months. Right. So, you know, I see with my with the teens that I work with over a one or two year period, complete transformation, complete transformation. So yeah. so it might not be that, OK, well, they've always done it this way in the past. So this time they're going to do it totally differently. But if you if you hold that po- that potential, um, that positive potential in mind over a, f- a six month window or a two year window that that can be massively different. Yes. So um, he um, he also writes in this one, he says, if I accept the other person as some as something fixed, already classified, already shaped by his or her past, and I am doing my part to confirm this limited hypothesis. If, however, I accept him or her as a process of becoming, then I am doing what I can to confirm or make real their potentialities. So, so if, if we're talking full circle back to self-actualization, if we want to make room for that actual self-actualization process to occur, we, we want to avoid getting completely fixated on past behavior. Right. Or, or, and I think I'll just add this because this is something that he brings in here as a a quote or a, a, yes, I guess a quote from Martin Buber, uh, the existentialist philosopher of the United, uh, of the university of Jerusalem. Martin Buber talks about this idea of confirming the other. And I, I think that what he says is confirming means accepting the whole potentiality of the other. What I want to say about that is that I'm not sure if this is exactly what is being articulated here by um, Carl Rogers, but it's also not believing we know who we want to create in the future in our child. So in other words, he does talk about it somewhere else and I can't remember where it is. He talks about like this idea that we're not, we're not forming and molding them. I mean, yes, we are to some degree, but there is a way that becoming is actually something we don't know. It's a mystery. The, the, the becoming of, of a person is a mystery. I'm still a mystery to myself to some degree. You know, every year I'm a little bit of a mystery. I'm still becoming. And I hope I'm becoming until the day I die. You know, that's uh, that's my goal is to be becoming forever. Well, so that means that if our young children or even our teenagers, they're still becoming. It's the idea that I'm not holding on to this idea of that I have in my head of of who I think they want them to I want them to become. And I'm sort of like trying to move them in that direction. Rather, I'm watching them and and like being there alongside them as they are becoming and holding that potentiality for them. Yeah. Well, towards the end, he makes a distinction between kind of this, you know, having this fixed idea of what we want our kids to be like right? versus holding this potentiality, right? And he says, um, if I see a relationship as only an opportunity to reinforce certain types of words or opinions in the others or behaviors, I would add, then I tend to confirm him or her as an object, a basically mechanical, manipulable object. Mm -hmm. And if I see this person as their potentiality, they tend to react in ways that supports that support this other hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, basically, the way that we see, the way that we choose to see our kids is going to, in a sense, invite different kinds of behavior mm-hmm. and and <clears throat> and different senses of selves because the our 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 sense of self is socially constructed which means we don't just form a sense of self in isolation i mean if if you took a child and just let it be raised by wolves the child would identify as a wolf (laughs) it it wouldn't have a human sense of self right our sense of self comes from interactions with other humans and and so when we when we relate to our children well and predominantly from our parents especially when we're very young and and so if we relate to our children as objects to be manipulated then they're going to sense themselves as such and if we relate to them as humans who are filled with potential and are becoming more and more of who they really are over time, they're going to internalize that sense of self. Yeah. So it's, it's just really important. Um, I want to read this. He says, um, he says, I have then, if I act in this way, confirmed this person as a living person capable of creative inner development. Well, you know what I just want to say about that? For one, I want to say that um, that is a one really huge piece of this is just not be boxing our kids in. So not to to this idea that they're cre- they're capable of creative inner development. You know, it's just to believe like anyone, there's hope for everyone, especially our children. There's always hope for people to choose something different. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think that, you know, it's it's um, and, and for us to be inviting that in them is. It's like uh, sometimes they need that. They need the invitation. They need someone to see their highest self and to remind them of who they are, you know, remind them of, of their potential. Yeah. And I also want to say this, something else about uh, this creating them, you know, like this mechanical, uh, um, like object, seeing them, yeah. seeing them as an object. I think one of the things we have to realize is that the more that we are in a relationship with our child where we are sort of like you know somehow using like control to get them to do the things we want them to do and um taking this more mechanical approach to it it means that they're more susceptible to that by others and so the more that we see their potential and we really are are confirming that in them the more solid they're going to be in themselves, the more solid sense of self they're going to have, and the more they're going to actually be capable in the world of making choices that are aligned with themselves and not being so impacted by everybody else around them and not being impacted by people who might be wanting to cause them harm. They're a little bit more capable of just of discernment. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm just thinking about... How much <laughs> there is to this? There's, so, I mean, good thing we didn't even tr- try to pack this into one episode because um, there's just so much here. I know. Um, and this is kind of, a, I mean, this is a very content dense 
episode kind of an, a good one to end our first season on. I think yeah. it's really there's so much here. So um, much. I think of all the episodes, this is probably the one that could be listened to multiple times, mm-hmm. maybe the most. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just I mean, Carl Rogers was just such a brilliant guy. So brilliant. Wow. I mean, I'm so impressed. <laughs> You know, and what did we say? This was from the well. The, some the this uh, the, this writing was from the fifties. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I know. I love it. I, I think that this is pretty amazing. So, so I guess. Um, do you have any final thoughts? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to even know for me how to sum any of that all up, other than to sort of just let it speak for itself. But if you have any parting thoughts, I'd I'd welcome them. I think that my parting thought is something related to what I was sharing with you right before we got on here, uh, that I was listening to Charles Eisenstein, and he is a climate activist, climate change activist, climate activist. I listened to several of his episodes, uh, his podcast episodes, and at the, one, at the end of one of them, I just really appreciated something that he said. And he, he said that we are you know, moving, the question is no longer going to be who is the winner and who is the loser. The question is, what is it like to be you? And so what I want to just end my, my parting thoughts are to say, that is the invitation. I think that actually sums up the helping relationship mm. is really being meeting people. And I don't think this has to just be in a relationship with a parent and a child. I think it helps for a therapist and a, and a client. I think it's also just all of our relationships, just getting deeply curious about what is it like to be you. Yeah. Well, that's, that is a great parting thought. And I think that sums it up beautifully. Everyone, thank you seriously for everything, for being with us on this journey. And um, we're just uh, really looking forward to continuing this. We're going to take a little bit of a break for season two um, coming in just a few weeks. We don't have an exact date yet, but um, not too long. And, um, and we will continue the journey. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Take care.